I'm Gregory Berg. The following morning show interview was recorded and initially broadcast back in 2008. Enjoy. I have been reading a most exciting, fascinating book called Forever on the Mountain, the truth behind one of mountaineering's most controversial and mysterious disasters. We are talking about something which occurred in 1967 on Mount McKinley, which is certainly one of the world's most inhospitable places and uh, a, a tremendously stern challenge for even the most experienced and skilled of mountain climbers. And uh, this was, uh, at the time, the third worst uh, disaster in mountain climbing uh, in, in world history. And uh, it still is marked with such controversy and mystery in terms of exactly what happened that would uh, claim so many lives and under what circumstances. Well, the man who has uh, done very hard work to explore this mystery is James Tabor. Perhaps you know him from the PBS series uh, The Great Outdoors. He's done a, a great deal of writing over the years for Smithsonian, American Heritage, and so on. He has actually been on Mount McKinley, I don't believe quite to the top, but uh, knows something about uh, the rigors of, of mountain climbing. And uh, over the course of many years has done rigorous investigation into this uh, important uh, and tragic moment in uh, mountain climbing history. Once again, the title of the book, Forever on the Mountain, The Truth Behind One of Mountaineering's Most Controversial and Mysterious Disasters, published by W.W. W. Norton and Company. And James Tabor, we welcome you to The Morning Show. Well, thank you, Greg, very, very much. I'm very glad to be here. Uh, I appreciate this opportunity. Uh, we're talking about a tragedy back in 1967 that uh, involved 12 people in all, seven victims, five survivors. Uh, but we know from reading your book that even for those five who were so fortunate to survive, uh, they bear some very painful scars uh, even 40 years after this disaster. Yeah, that's exactly right. You know, um, one, of the, uh, one of the things I did was to interview all the survivors um, in person, and I was struck, <clears throat> excuse me, I was struck by how much of the tragedy they still carried with them. One of them, when we looked at slides, for example, broke down and wept openly. Uh, an, another uh, came very close to doing the same thing. And I think probably the person who has suffered the longest and most is uh, Joe Wilcox, the man who was the leader of the expedition and who was, uh, it turns out unfairly, really uh, uh, pilloried as having been at fault uh, for flawed leadership, in other words, that that might have contributed to the tragedy. So I think Joe really has borne the largest cross over the decades. Um, how much did you know about this incident before you began concerted work on the book? Well, that's a really great question. Even though I had climbed in Alaska a good bit myself in the 80s and was you know, very familiar with mountaineering literature, I didn't know uh, anything about it. I discovered it by accident about uh, four years ago, and uh, the more I, the more, first of all, the more I realized that it was not very well known, and second of all, the more I realized that there was an awful lot more to the story than had ever been made public. I, you know, I kind of got on the scent and, and just just couldn't get off the trail. I was intrigued <laughs> by it. <laughs> well, and I, I, I get the clear sense, especially from reading the introduction to the book, that 
not only was this in in and of itself a, a, a tragedy, I mean, seven people uh, dying on the top of a mountain, of course, but that in some ways uh, such a, a significant part of that tragedy was sort of the way in which it was mishandled in its aftermath. The fact that no truly proper thorough investigation really took place. And so these lingering questions uh, are there and uh, the blame game is played. And what was already a really painful situation for the survivors was made even more so. Well, you know, that's exactly right. I mean, a a good comparison is the terrible tragedy that maybe happened on, on Everest in 1996. There were really no unanswered questions about that. I mean, even one of the poor fellows who died was talking to his wife on a satellite phone as he as he was expiring up near the summit. So that was a very transparent uh, disaster. That it was not the case with the '67 uh, tragedy, and part of the reason was that uh, the National Park Service, which really, uh, to put it bluntly, failed in its responsibility to try to help the trapped climbers, um, was anxious to point the finger of blame elsewhere, as you, you know, can possibly understand. So that really precluded a thorough, a thorough and professional investigation and left so many questions unanswered over the years. I think you also, I'm sorry, didn't interrupt, but you mentioned, I think, in the epilogue that for the seven men who, who perished, uh, neither camera nor journal was recovered from, from any of them, and, and that might have answered a few of these questions. That's exactly right. You know, none of the bodies were ever recovered. There were no journals, cameras, diaries. None of those things were ever found. So uh, there, there really was a, a huge number of questions left about um, where were the men, for example. Uh, you know, at what what efforts did they make to to rescue themselves? What were their thoughts as they were up there, as the days passed, eight, nine, ten days, and and no help was coming to them. So. Um, that certainly contributed to the mystery tremendously. How difficult was it for you to connect up with these uh, uh, survivors? And um, how reluctant were they, if they were reluctant, to speak with you about these events? Those are both really good questions. You know, I began my career as a journalist back in the the pre-Internet days, and um, given the Internet, it was extremely uh, easy, actually, to locate uh, all of the men to find out you know, where they were and how to get in touch with them. That was the easy part. The more difficult part was convincing them that, it, that, that there was uh, value in communicating with me as, as an author to answer some questions that had not been answered. I mean, it was 40 years in their past. It was an extraordinarily painful time. And um, it, took, it took a couple of them, Howard Snyder and Joe Wilcox in particular, uh, a number of weeks to finally, A, I think, trust that I was not out to do a hatchet job, and B, to understand that um, it, it would be a service to look at this more closely than it had been looked at. We're speaking with James Tabor about his book, Forever on the Mountain, the truth behind one of mountaineering's most controversial and mysterious disasters. We should talk for a few moments about uh, Mount McKinley itself, uh, what makes it a particularly challenging uh, mountain to climb, and, uh, and, 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 the, and, the, and the various reasons why that is so. 
Absolutely. You know, um, a, a famous mountaineering writer named Robert Byers has said that there are two truly iconic peaks on Earth, Everest being one and McKinley being the other. Um, and you can debate that, but it, it's certainly true that McKinley is a, is a remarkably unique mountain. For one thing, it's 20,320 feet high, which makes it uh, the highest mountain in North America. But even that's a little deceptive because the atmosphere, as you get closer to the poles, is much thinner than it is around the equator. So the true altitude of McKinley, if you're up there, um, is more like 23 or even 24,000 in the Himalaya. So that's one thing. Another thing is uh, something called prominence, or the base-to-summit elevation that requires vertical gain by, on the part of climbers. Mount Everest is about 10,000. You know, you start at 19,000 at base camp, and you summit at 29. Well, McKinley does that better by a full mile. Uh, you start in McKinley climb at 5,000, and you top out at 20, so you have to gain 15,000 vertical feet. And finally, it's about 160 miles due east of the Bering Sea, which mariners call the birthplace of storms. And when these huge storms come roaring, roaring east out of that uh, body of water, the first thing they hit is Mount McKinley, sticking up just like a big rock in white water. And um, so those three things really combine to make it an extraordinary mountaineering challenge. I want to read you a line from the book and, and have you explain a little further what you mean by this. You say McKinley's size is not all that matters. You could think of McKinley as a battlefield, rich with threat from every conceivable direction, as military battlefields are. Sure. You know, I, I will admit that um, I borrowed that illusion from a much more experienced and famous mountain climber named Peter Hackett. He's a, a mountaineering physician who... Oh, yeah, you say that in the next line. I didn't notice that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> well, I just want to give him credit where credit's due, but my own experience bore that out because you have threat from the sky. You can be avalanched um, or you can have cornices, huge cornices drop on you, so you're sort of like bombardments. You, you, can, you have threat underfoot, you know, if you imagine a huge minefield. Well, the, the crevasses that kill you on McKinley are ones that are disguised by thin snow bridges, so you never see them. They're, they're literally like, like booby traps. And then, ultimately, you almost have kind of a, a, a gas attack that the mountain mounts against you because the thin air becomes poisonous at a certain altitude and actually can cause your lungs to fill with fluid and your, your brain to swell and do some, just do some terrible things. So... In that sense, Peter Hackett says it's like combat, and, you know, I, I agree with that <laughs> based mm. on my experience up there. Tell us a little bit about how much Mount McKinley had been climbed before 1967. Maybe you can mention in particular uh, this uh, interesting uh, experience early in the century by uh, the sourdoughs. Oh, my gosh, yeah, that's just such a... Um, a four... Uh, really prospectors and dog drivers um, in 1910 uh, took up a challenge to climb the mountain, which uh, a barkeep friend of theirs had said, or bar saloon keeper said, you can't be done. Well, they had not a day of mountaineering experience. They had really no what we would call proper equipment. And yet they climbed the North Peak, uh, which is about 19,000 feet, and they did the summit push. It just this is remarkable. From about uh, I think it was about eleven thousand feet to nineteen thousand feet. They did that in a round trip, in a, a less than twenty hours. Um, and to do that, they had to negotiate a fifty-five degree ice couloir, uh, which is about twenty-five hundred feet long. Now that would be a huge challenge today for mountaineers with the best equipment that you money can buy. So experts recognize that their accomplishment remains one of the most 
astonishing mountaineering achievements of all time, really. Um, uh, and, and it was actually truly climbed. The, the true summit is the South Peak, and Archdeacon Hudson Stuck led the expedition, which uh, climbed that summit in 1913. What's equally interesting is that in the 54 years between 1913 and 1967, there were four climbing fatalities on the mountain. So the July 67 tragedy almost doubled that fatality total in one fell swoop. Wow. That says something, too, about those who had climbed it before, because it was such a, such a challenging mountain. I mean, people had appreciated its difficulty. Uh, now, when 1967 rolls around, uh, it's, it's interesting, first of all, for us to learn in your book about what was required in order for mountain climbers to attack something like Mount McKinley. Tell us a little bit about the permits that had to be uh, secured. You bet. You know, to set the stage a little bit, I'll say that today, um, anyone, because it's a national park, anyone can climb Mount McKinley who can um, put down a $200 climbing fee and fill out a few simple forms. Well, that was not the case in 1967. The the, uh, Park Service restricted access pretty rigorously. You had to um, you had to undergo a thorough physical by a physician and submit that to them. You had to present a climbing resume that documented previous climbs you had done. You had to give them an autobiography that talked about basically your, your life in general. Um, and probably most importantly, the Park Service would not allow groups smaller than four to climb the mountain. Their feeling was strength lay in numbers, and the bigger a party was, the safer they felt that it was also, you know, that was not strictly true, but that's the way that they, um, that's the way that they regulated the mountain in those days. So we have then uh, one of the key ingredients to uh, part of the sort of inherent difficulty of this particular expedition, the fact that we have the melding of two different groups uh, yeah, absolutely. There were there were two separate expeditions planning to climb the mountain, led by two different men and uh, originating in two different parts of the country. Uh, one group of nine, led by Joe Wilcox, and one group of four, led by Howard Snyder. At the last minute, sadly for Howard, one of his climbers was hurt in an automobile accident and couldn't go. So essentially the Park Service said to him, well, you can not climb. That's option one. Or you can join up with this larger group, become part of them under their leadership, and climb that way. But they would not allow a group of just three climbers to scale the mountain. That would, that would not be permitted. That's exactly right. And so they did meld, as you, as you put it, but they never really coalesced into uh, an efficiently functioning, amicable team. There was, there was friction from the outset, and the higher they went, the worse it, it became. And that certainly, I think, was one of the factors that... Um, contributed to, didn't cause, but contributed to what happened. Hmm. Tell us a little bit about this gentleman who had the large uh, expedition, uh, the group of, of, of nine climbers uh, wanting to scale Mount McKinley, this gentleman named Joe Wilcox uh, leading the Joe Wilcox Mount McKinley expedition. Sure. He was 24 at the time. He was a graduate student at Brigham Young University, and he was a very, very experienced mountaineer. He had uh, been a head guide uh, on Mount Rainier, which is the typical um, stepping stone that you, you climb before you go on to the Himalaya or to Alaska. He had led many climbs there through many of the most diff- difficult routes. 
he was very, very experienced, and um, and his his leadership, unfortunately, in the aftermath of the tragedy, was was singled out as I think I said earlier as one of the causes. Well, his leadership was really better uh, than that verdict would lead one to believe. At least my investigation uh, demonstrated that. I guess you would say. Um, I caught up with Joe. Oh, he lives in Seattle now. A wonderful guy, uh, expert blue water sailor, a master's level runner who beat actually Frank Shorter in a <laughs> in a running race not too many years ago. Um, and uh, just a fascinating fellow. But I think lived all these decades feeling somewhat under the shadow of guilt that maybe he really didn't deserve. He has this group of nine climbers, and then he is contacted by this other gentleman, a gentleman by the name of uh, it's Howard Snyder, I think, right? That's correct. That's exactly and right. He, and yeah. he's the person who, of course, had a team of four, and then they lose one because of this car accident injury. And so Mr. Snyder is contacting Mr. Wilcox to see if if uh, Snyder and his two compatriots can join the Wilcox expedition. There's been contact between the two already, and already quite a lot of wariness. Uh, and, and there is reluctance on the part of a lot of, the, of, of climbers in Wilcox's group about allowing these others to join them. Ex- explain to us what, what was going on, as far as you can tell. Sure. Well, even when, when Howard's group still included four and was uh, you know, a legally permittable group, the, the Park Service was still nervous because, in their estimation, four was a pretty darn small party. So they had suggested, you know, maybe suggested strongly to Howard, you know, why don't you get in contact with this other larger group that's going to be up on the mountain and at least form some kind of of loose coalition so maybe you guys climb in sight of each other, you know, in case somebody gets in trouble, you'll be there to help each other out. So Howard and Joe had spoken on the telephone and corresponded uh, a bit uh, just about that very loose kind of a coalition even with that loose concept, the members of Joe's team were not comfortable. I mean, I think they sensed that um, coming together with folks that you had never met, knew nothing about their climbing capabilities, you know, might not be the best thing to do on a hugely challenging mountain like McKinley. So there was a lot of resistance, and that resistance, quite frankly, was increased when it became apparent that the three Coloradoans were actually going to become part and parcel of the team itself. Hmm. I thought this was so fascinating to think about the, the different ways this might have played out. You say the original proposal was for a loose alliance on the mountain, not much more than the two teams keeping each other in sight, and Joe's team, Wilcox, had resisted even that. Now they were looking at something even more objectionable, making one team out of the two tenting, eating, sleeping, climbing, defecating, and everything else, not just near the strangers, but with them. I mean, I think for those of us who have never undertaken something like this or never even seriously thought about it, uh, we don't perhaps realize that or, or it doesn't really sink in just what kind of experience we are talking about when, it, when one is climbing a mountain with, with, with others and the way in which you are with them in every sense of the word. Yeah, you know, that's exactly right, and there, there's two ways that can play out. One of them um, sort of is termed the brotherhood of the rope, and if everything works well, you can form relationships, as I did myself, on climbs like this that last a lifetime. They're just uh, uh, unbelievable bonding. However, if it works the other way, 
while you're on the mountain, you can have tremendous animosities, tremendous animosities created by the stress and the friction and all the things that build up under those kinds of conditions. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, with the, the Wilcox and Snyder groups, it was, it was the latter. Um, perhaps the most important thing, though, was, was climbing speed. If the groups had climbed separately, they would have probably, one group would have gone to the, the summit faster and gotten down, and the other group probably would not have been struck by the awful storm. So I think it's, it's safe to, to suggest that their coming together was one of the factors that created the coincidence of events that, that really caused the tragedy. The, the fact that they are different in the way they climb. Is it? Yes, exactly. The Colorado, well, there were, three group, there were three, so there were a smaller group. They were faster climbers. They liked to go very quickly. They were also much bigger men, I think you said. <laughs> they were. I think their average size was about 6'3 and 220 pounds. I mean, they were, these were big guys um, who could heft large loads and really move very quickly. The uh, Wilcox Group's average size was about 5'10 and maybe 160 pounds. So, you know, they were, from the get-go, they were going to be slower climbers. Mm. And, and, <laughs> and you say, you know, the, the difference in size at sea level on a casual camping trip, that would not matter so much. But under the stresses and strains of climbing continually at high altitude, the differences, like any dissimilarity, can become much more important. Boy, you know, that's true, and I learned that firsthand. I mean, I climbed or tried to climb McKinley with a guy who was a very, very good friend. We were, we were quite close, and he was a, a much faster climber than I was. And so one day after about, I don't know, 12 or 13 hours of yanking each other on the rope, we finally stopped, and he was so irritated that he took out a bag of cookies from his pack and threw them at me and hit me in the head. <laughs> <laughs> he said, you've got to go faster, Jim, you know. And that was between two close friends. So that kind of disparity um, can be just irritating beyond belief when you're, when you're on a mountain like that. Hmm. We're speaking with James M. Tabor, the author of Forever on the Mountain, the truth behind one of mountaineering's most controversial and mysterious disasters. We learn a lot about mountaineering as we read your book. Uh, and I, th- I thought it might be interesting for you to just briefly describe to our listeners that most basic way in which a, a mountain like Mount McKinley is scaled with this idea of the advanced team and the others following along and so on. Just sketch the, the, the fundamentals of that. Sure. Well, it's called siege-style climbing, and it takes its name from um, the British, really, who kind of pioneered big mountain climbing back in the early part of the century and used a number of camps to work their way up large Himalayan peaks, mo- most, uh, most particularly Mount Everest. The, the route um, that the Wilcox Party took going up Mount McKinley is called the Muldrow Glacier Route. It's a 29-mile one-way uh, trip from Wonder Lake, the jump-off point, to the summit, which makes it a 58-mile round trip. And that's important because any mountaineer will tell you that the second half of a climb is the least pleasant and the most dangerous, both. That's where... Statistically, many more accidents happen on descent, so it's, it's, uh, it's a long, long round trip. It requires the establishment, or required in their case, of seven separate camps, the highest one being at 17,900 feet just uh, below Denali Pass, and that's the camp from which summit attempts or summit day assaults are made on the peak. 
Uh, they took about 3,000 pounds of uh, food and gear and equipment with them, uh, and it took them exactly, exactly 30 days, a month to the day, from their jump-off day, June 15th, until uh, the first men set foot on the summit July 15th. Mm. So that's kind of the, the large overview of how you, how you do a, a route like um, the Muldrow. But more specifically, I guess, you would, um, let's say, bring all of the supplies, everything, everything, a tremendous amount, up to Camp 2. And then an advanced team, a rope of four men, would, what they call, make the route. In other words, find a route that was safe between crevasses and, 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 um, and also break the snow trail to Camp 3. They would establish that campsite. And then in subsequent carries, different rope teams of, of generally four men would load most of the supplies up to Camp 3. And you would continue that process all the way up to Camp 7. Hmm. As they were climbing this uh, huge glacier, what's the name of it again? The Muldrow, M-U-L-D-R-O-W. You talk of how it is the crevices or crevasses, whatever you prefer, uh, that pose such tremendous danger. And an interesting point you make that had never dawned on me is that the most dangerous crevasses would not be the huge ones that you described that could, you know, swallow up a cathedral or a football field, or I forget exactly your, your image there, but it's actually the smaller ones that are often all but, but invisible that, yeah. uh, that, that really uh, are, are, are probably the deadliest. That's exactly right. You know, there was a, a fascinating incident um, about uh, somewhere around Camp 3 where several of the climbers at this point, they were getting fatigued. There were altitudes beginning to tell a little bit. They were tired. So several of the climbers said to Joe Wilcox, look, you know, we don't, we don't need to rope up here. It's slowing us down, and we can see all these giant crevasses around us. What's the big deal? Well, Joe just blew his top because he was experienced enough to know that it was the small, the small and very well-concealed crevasses um, with very fragile snow bridges over them that were the, the true these were the true hazards, and um, because, you, of course, you're not going to fall in a crevasse, you can see. And not too long after they had that conversation, uh, the biggest man in the group, Jerry Lewis, who weighed about 230 pounds at the time, um, was going along as part of a four-man rope, and sure enough, uh, he stepped on one of these invisible crevasses, and down he went. And they were lucky. They arrested him and got him out. But it was a dramatic demonstration of, uh, of how dangerous those things can be. Hmm. One thing which is, of course, a, a perpetual issue, we, we've touched on it already in the interview, is the fact that we were talking about two different groups coming together. And physically, they were very different from one another, and style of climbing also different from one another. And just mathematically, uh, these, these, these teams had to intermingle in the sense that, I mean, you couldn't have just these three climbing and then everyone else climbing on their own there was mingling of these two groups and and that led to some some really specific problems and issues it it really did the the two groups that you're referring to are the the three uh, fellows from Colorado led by Howard Snyder and including Jerry Lewis and Paul Schlichter um, these were all big men physically they were extremely fit they were experienced climbers and their philosophy was um, you, you can't hit a moving target, basically, or the faster you go on the mountain between your camps, the less likely you are 
to be exposed to um, objective dangers like you know sudden storms, avalanches, cornices, cornices falling on you, things like that. The other nine men, um, seven of whom were also very experienced mountaineers, had a different philosophy, and their philosophy was that you should never climb so fast that you you empty your tank, you burn yourself out, so that if an emergency occurs, you don't have the mental and physical energy you know left to deal with what you've got to deal with. So those two philosophies came in, <laughs> came into into collision a lot because, as you say. They had the groups had to mix together on rope teams. Most often, rope teams were four men. Um, that was just common at the time. It was felt that that was a safe number. Uh, if one guy went down into a crevasse, it would be easier for three to pull him out than for two, or certainly than one. So, that was a constant source of friction all the way up and down the mountain, and it eventually culminated in I think Jerry Lewis. Um, no, I'm sorry, Jerry Clark, the deputy leader of the Wilcox group, just called a halt one time and just blew his top and started yelling and cursing at Howard Snyder, who he had been trying to slow down for um, over an hour at least. So it, it was it was not a good situation, and it caused more and more friction the higher they went up top. I was trying to pay attention to this. Did these pairings uh, remain fairly constant, or from day to day would those change in terms of who was climbing with whom? Yeah, they would change a lot. Um, they would They would really change almost constantly. And there were a couple of guys, uh, John Russell being one of them, who refused to climb with certain other fellows just because of personality conflicts. But a lot of it had to do with who was feeling the freshest, who was um, you know, up physically and mentally on a particular day, who was gung-ho, uh, maybe who was burned out from a previous climb, uh, things like that. So there was a cons- really a constant kind of interchange and rotation of, of rope team members. There are two other uh, factors, very important, uh, one of them being illness, which strikes several different climbers along the way, and, 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 and our, our, the, the impression we get is that we're, we're not talking about uh, the other thing, which is that the higher you go, the thinner the air gets, and, uh, and people have varying abilities to cope with that. And that also became a very, very serious issue, you say, because of Mount McKinley, where it's located. That's, it's a much more important issue there than it might be on other tall mountains. But talk about both of those factors weighing on the ultimate success or failure of this. Sure. Uh, you're right about, about the altitude at McKinley being, being different than other mountains. The, it, the fact is that the atmosphere, our Earth's atmosphere, is, is thickest around the equator, around its waist, kind of like mine, unfortunately, but, and thinnest up near the poles. And so a mountain like Everest, which is down really fairly near the equator, despite it being in the Himalaya, has, has very, very thick atmosphere relatively, even up at 29,000 feet. Well, McKinley, being so close to the Arctic Circle, has much thinner atmosphere, so barometrically, its effect on the body at 20,000 feet on McKinley is, is the equivalent of 23 or even 24,000 on Everest. So it's, it's a little deceptive that way. It's a much more severe climb in terms of altitude. The, and the fact is, um, and they still have not figured out exactly why, but every, everyone's body, every person's body responds differently to altitude. Some folks just cruise through it up and down, and some folks become ill as low as ten or 11 or 12,000 feet and really almost incapacitated. So that was one thing they were dealing with all the way up and down. But there, were, there was a, an, another um, 
kind of illness, which is not uncommon on mountain climbing expeditions, and it's um, intestinal problems just because of uh, change in diet, uh, maybe, maybe some of the foods a little tainted, and Anshul shift in particular was really not able to eat for probably the first, golly, maybe 12 or 14 days of the expedition. So he became progressively weaker and weaker and less able to carry full, full loads. Um, so they were, they were dealing with both of those kinds of, of problems. You're right. Wow. And, that's, and this, of course, is already grueling. And if you put a problem like that on top of it, I mean, it, it's hard to imagine how anybody manages to survive the ordeal. Yeah, you know, you're right. I mean, I was, I think, on the mountain only for 14 or 15 days, and I lost 20 pounds just in that particular, in that, that really relatively short period of time and never, you know, never got above 14,500 feet. Mm. You suggest that um, that one ingredient in what ultimately turned into a, a disaster on the mountain, I mean, with the loss of life, almost half of these climbers losing their life on Mount McKinley, uh, might have come from... What, what's a little bit hard to exactly assess, but sort of a combination of of, of ignorance and overconfidence of, of, of at least some of these climbers, and maybe most of them, not fully understanding all of the dangers of climbing Mount McKinley. Partly, you say, because there really, in 1967, uh, was not all that much information readily available that that would communicate that uh and 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 not perhaps fully understanding uh the importance of certain details like supplies who organizes them who packs them who distributes them uh in in such a way that that every climber has everything they need at any time uh it's very interesting to 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 weigh those those matters which did in the end seem to make a, a really crucial difference. I think that's true. You know, there are really three ways that you, you need to arm yourself for any any serious expedition. One of them, of course, is to have the best possible equipment that you can have. So you 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 know your your tents are going to be bombproof. Your shovels are going to be big enough. Your you know your crampons are sharp. Uh, the other component of that is your body. You need to be, even though altitude affects everyone differently, you still need to be able to perform at an extraordinarily demanding level physically for weeks and weeks and weeks on end. But the third thing you need is information, is information about the place you're going to go. And today, if you Google Denali or Mount McKinley, you'll pull up literally thousands of sources of information, which include real-time videos, very detailed route maps, things like that. Um, there have even been full books written about one route on McKinley. Well, back in 67, that wasn't the case. I think there were really only about maybe three or four sources specifically devoted to climbing McKinley with detailed route information and things like that. So the information available to these guys was much, much more limited. In addition, um, it is it is easy even today to underestimate McKinley because two of the, the most common climbs, the West Buttress and the Muldrow that these guys went on, are not horribly technical climbs. They don't require a lot of vertical, uh, vertical protected, technically protected ascending. And so, a couple of the fellows looked at the route just on a map and said, "Gosh, you know, we're just going to be kind of like pack mules for the first half of this trip. That's going to get pretty boring. Maybe we should climb something more challenging." Well, 
unfortunately, that's an all-too-common response to McKinley. But once you get above twelve or 13,000 feet, the climbing does become more technical, and then you also have the altitude and this, this really unique weather to deal with. Hmm. So, One thing you try to dispel in your book is a charge that was laid uh, quite frequently that this that this group was too inexperienced to attempt Mount McKinley. You say that's an oversimplistic charge, that in fact there was a lot of experience and skill and physical strength uh, represented uh, in, in these dozen dozen climbers, uh, that, that the answer is, is more like we were just talking about and not simple inexperience. Yeah, that's, that's very true. I think the, the inexperience accusation was made you know, in the wake of the tragedy was made by, by some people in government and a couple of people out of, out of government to try to keep the focus on the climbers themselves rather than on agencies that had kind of really uh, messed up um, any, any attempt at rescue. In the Wilcox group of nine itself, the fact is that seven of those men were, were very, very experienced. They had climbed the big mountains in, um, in Mexico. They had climbed all the big lower 48 peaks, including Rainier, um, a couple of them had been to the Alps. Uh, Jerry Clark, the deputy leader, had climbed in Antarctica and was uh, a mountaineering safety instructor for the government. Joe Wilcox had been a head guide on Rainier for you know dozens of, of summit climbs. So uh, they really did have a very deep level of experience. Now, it's true that two of them, Anshul Schiff and Steve Taylor, were less experienced, but it was never their intention to go to the summit from the beginning. They, they just came along as Sherpas, as they're called, to, to help carry loads. So it really was not a valid a valid criticism at all. Hmm. One of the things that put these climbers at a terrible disadvantage is the lack of um, thorough, sophisticated information about the weather. Mm-hmm. Um, talk for a moment about about those those limitations uh, and and why there wasn't more good, reliable, helpful weather information available to them. Sure. One of the, the most dramatic uh, ways that that was brought home to me was when I requested information about weather at that, at that time from the National Weather Service. And they got it to me, <laughs> but it was in boxes, uh, huge boxes of paper, you know, which um, meteorological charts, which demonstrated to me that nothing was computerized back then. You know, there was no real electronic communication of weather conditions. So it was so primitive that the National Park Service up in Talkeetna and its headquarters was listening in on AM and FM radio stations in Anchorage to get consumer radio stations to get weather reports, which they would then try to relay through their primitive radio system to the guys on the mountain. Well, that was a very, very, very primitive way to do it, and um, it just didn't work. The guys were not able to get long-range forecasts uh, far enough out to do it to be really functional in any kind of their route planning. Hmm. Well, we can read in your book more of the specifics about uh, what transpires as they make their way up the mountain and eventually close to the summit. Um, I- explain how we know what we know ab- about that. I mean, because it's it, it's really amazing how, how much information there, there still is about in, in, in some respects, every step of the way in terms of up the mountain. Uh, what kind of records do, do climbers keep that, 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 that allow us to know so much? Well, the five, of the five survivors, uh, two of them, Joe Wilcox and Howard Snyder, kept very detailed climbing journals, and they made 
those available to me. So they had a, a chronicle of, of going up, of their own summit attempt, of coming down, and then of their experiences you know, after the, seven, the other seven men became trapped. The Mountaineering Club of Alaska group of five who became the de facto rescue team also kept detailed journals and took very, very good pictures. And so they all survived and made their journals available to me. In addition, there were radio transmissions that were uh, actually transcribed and recorded and transcribed after it became clear that the seven men were, were, were trapped. And uh, I was able to access those, you know, from the government files. And then finally, some of the men who were um, mountaineering rangers or rangers at the time also kept very detailed diaries and logs, and those were extremely helpful in reconstructing uh, events that went on. Um, and, and then finally, the, uh, the, the, the trapped men, the men who ultimately perished, uh, did make a final radio broadcast from the summit when they had reached it at about 11.30 a.m. on July 18th. And so we know from that broadcast that they were all feeling very good. They were in good shape. They were, they were, uh, they were sort of jocular. One of them dictated a funny postcard that he wanted sent to his parents. They described themselves as being A-OK. Um, you know, we've made the summit. It's great. Now we're going to go down. Everybody's feeling good. And then they were never heard from again because the monster storm hit them about 45 minutes later. Hmm. We get the sense that they were lucky, actually, to reach the summit in that uh, the smaller party that made the summit first, a group of, th- uh, was it three climbers? It was four. It was four. Three oh, that's right. And, and Joe Wilcox. That's yeah. right. They reached the summit first, but they don't have enough wands with them, which I guess would be these small little flags that get planted in the ground, sort of like the breadcrumbs in Hansel and Gretel, I mean, that, are, that you stake out to, to, to show the path you've taken so you can take that path again on your way down, and then it can serve as an aid for other climbers. Yeah, uh, yeah that's exactly right. The wands are they're 36-inch um, uh, bamboo, bamboo sticks. They're typically green. They're about as big around as a pencil lead, and they're topped with orange or sometimes pink um, fluorescent surveyor's tape, that kind of plastic tape. And typically on that upper route of McKinley, about every 100 feet, you, you want to stick one uh, be, as you're going up because the, the severe whiteouts um, that com- can come in there will reduce visibility to that low level or lower. So you need to do that to find your way ra- down. And you're right, the, the first group, for a variety of reasons, didn't have enough wands to accurately mark their route all the way to the summit. And they had very good weather going up and coming down. But when the second group started uh, and were struck by not a storm, but a whiteout, a severe whiteout on the 17th, they had to stop about halfway to the summit because they were lost and very wisely didn't want to keep walking and, you know, walk off a, a cornice or something like that. Hmm. It's interesting, uh, as we read your book, at 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 a certain point, uh, you are writing quite authoritatively about Howard Snyder and Joe Wilcox, that group of four that reached the summit and then do make their way down the mountain. At some point, what you write about the remaining climbers, the seven, becomes essentially speculation. Right. And then at some point in the book, we... We're not even speculating anymore. They are just sort of presumed lost, and in a sense, they, as people, sort of 
vanish from the pages, if, if, if you know what I mean. Yeah. I, I wonder if you would just talk for a moment now as, as the author about, I, I imagine, maybe the way you wrestled with this problem of, of how much to write about various parts of this story, uh, how far to take your speculation, and, and, and especially at what point the veil just had to be drawn over these seven lives lost. Sure, you bet. Um, first of all, my, my editor and I agreed early on that we would we would not fictionalize, we would not hypothesize any anything that happened if we were writing about events that we um, did not have firm and even double backup document documentary evidence. We really wanted to be very clear to signal to the reader we're speculating here. This is what we think probably happened, but this is speculation. So. We, we, we had some things to go on. We knew, for example, that, that John Russell um, w- was found, his body was found by the Mountaineering Club group at uh, the high camp at 17,900 feet where he had frozen to death. The next day we knew that the, that the, the MCA fellows also found, but were not able to recover, two other bodies, uh, Walt Taylor and Dennis Luchterhand, and they were had, they've died, they perished, trying to make the descent uh, from... Uh, about 18,600 feet down to the camp, and they just just didn't make it. We speculate, because this is what good mountaineers would have done, that on the 17th, when the the men were trapped in whiteout, they would have dug snow caves and and hunkered in um, and just waited for that whiteout to pass. We, We know after that, that they did progress onto the summit in good, healthy fashion and made that that broadcast, uh, you know, from the summit. And we know that the storm which hit them, hit them about 45 minutes later, which would have given them time descending at a normal rate to be right back at the snow caves that they would have dug the previous evening. And so we we think again that mountaineering doctrine, and they would have followed it, to to go back into those snow caves and wait out what they probably expected to be, you know, a one- or two-day storm at most. Well, it turned out to be a 10-day storm. And um, from there on, what becomes, uh, because we have then, after that, no evidence, nothing firm, nothing factual. And um, I write because I, I myself have been trapped in snow caves by, by bad storms on Alaskan mountains. So um, I, I try to be careful in the book and say, I don't know that this is what happened to the men. But if they were in the snow caves, based on my own experience, these are the kind of conditions that they would have confronted and I, I consulted a number of altitude and physiological uh, researchers and physicians to find out exactly how people die from exposure, if in fact that's what happened to these fellows. And so we do we do have medical knowledge about that. So right. that's kind of a long answer to your question, but um, that's sort of how I, I tried to piece together the elements that we didn't have firm documentary evidence for. A, a very poignant moment is when you pose this question. Thinking about the seven men up high, I wonder when players in a tragedy realize that the story is about their own destruction. You then mention, for instance, uh, uh, passengers on the Titanic and what has to be uh, uh, maybe a terrible moment of, of realization that, uh, that I'm not going to be one of the people that uh, years from now tells, tells their grandkids about this time when I almost died, mm-hmm. that in fact... Uh, I am not going to survive this terrible story in which I am involved. It's it's um, it's just an incredibly poignant and an incredibly um, 
a telling moment. Uh, you know, I think people experience the, those kinds of moments in various ways. The Titanic passengers would be one example. Um, probably soldiers going into combat, you know, f- into an attack, for example, from which they know statistically many of them are not going to return. And then I cite the example of my own close friend, whose name was Bob, who um, came down with cancer and absolutely knew that this was a cancer he would not recover from. And yet, even hours before his death, had looked at me in the eye and said, what happened? What, Jim, what happened? How did I get here? So in his case, it was so hard for him to fully accept that he really was going to die. And so I speculate that, by golly, it may be, you know, it may be just impossible to fully wrap one's mind around the fact that um, my life is over. You know, I'm, I'm, I will not get out of this situation. And I haven't been there myself, so I can only speculate. Hmm. The um, story also, uh, we have touched on this briefly, is, is not only about disaster unfolding on the mountain, but in a sense, disaster uh, aggravated terribly by uh, incompetence on the ground or incompetence, or insensitivity, or a, a whole host of things tangled together in which no rescue attempt uh, is, is, is mounted, save for some climbers that are already on Mount McKinley, led by Bill Babcock, who are nearly killed themselves, uh, ascending the mountain, trying to find some trace of those that are feared lost. But on the ground... Uh, in terms of of where a concerted rescue uh, operation needed to originate, uh, none was attempted uh, within a time frame that 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 meant anything. One of the things you tell us that is especially frustrating is that at least some of the people making decisions about that were people that had absolutely no mountaineering experience and would seem to have had no appreciation whatsoever about the events that were unfolding. That's exactly right, and you know it's it's such a frustrating thing uh, because they were men who were were tasked with an, just an incredibly demanding job, but had not really been given the training and had no experience to do it. And we're talking about George Hall, who was the park superintendent in those days, and Arthur Hayes, who was the chief ranger. Now, both of those men unfortunately passed away before I was able to interview them, so uh, I, I wasn't able to speak to them directly, but. There were a number of interviews that they that they gave uh, over the years, and there were a number of records of contacts with them. And the fact is that they were they were good men, they were good managers, but they were lifetime bureaucrats, and not one of them had a day of mountaineering experience between them. So they really didn't understand, I think, firsthand what serious trouble the guys were in up high. In fact, as Howard Snyder and Anshul Schiff and the other Coloradans were leaving the park, now it was uh, 11 days after the men had been trapped, they went through the headquarters, and George Hall said to them, well, it's good to see you boys, and we don't really think anything too serious could be happening to the guys up top because it's a big group and they're all experienced. And Angel Schiff just blew up, and he said, what do you mean? You haven't heard from them for 10 days. Of course they're in trouble. But that was an indication of how, um, how little they were able to appreciate what was going on. And, uh, you know, in the book I say you can't really... You can't fault men who don't have the training to do what their job requires them to do, but they had working for them one of the leading search and rescue North, uh, experts in North America, Wayne Mary, who was also a climbing legend in his own right by that time. And day after day, hour after hour, he urged them 
to mount a major rescue, and every time he did, they refused. So I do say that they, sh- they sh- could have and should have listened to Wayne's expertise because he was the resident, um, the resident expert on what was going on. Uh, to be fair, one thing that perhaps slowed things down, in the, at least in the very early going, is that Joe Wilcox himself, who barely makes it down the mountain alive, uh, in, in, in the first few hours... Uh, does not seem to believe that that a full-scale rescue operation is, in fact, necessary. I mean, he does not set those wheels in motion. He does not officially request that such a rescue be undertaken. He is, in effect, in, in a state of denial, perhaps partly because of, of the uh, dazed state in, in which he finds himself. You're right. I think, he, I think there were a number of factors that contributed to excuse me, the slowness with which he decided to use the term all-out rescue and to give the go-ahead for it. Um, partly it was because he was, uh, as the MCA guys described him when they first saw him, he was staggering and in shock. So for at least half a day or a day, he was not in con- He just really didn't have his, his mental faculties under control. Um, for another, I think he was aware that uh, an ex- a-, a rescue attempt was going to be ex- extraordinarily expensive, and that if he called it as expedition leader, some of the financial burden would would fall on his shoulders. But much more important, I think, was his, is what I describe as the denial phenomenon, you know, that Elizabeth Kubler-Ross has, has described. I think it was very, very difficult for him to accept fully and emotionally that these, these men are in such serious trouble that some of them may be dying or dead already. And I, th- I think that slowed him down as well. But you're right. For the first two or three days, Joe did not make that call, and, uh, and that was his responsibility. I don't remember you ever saying this in your book nor implying it, but I, I have to ask, one thing you talk about at great length is how as this expedition began, uh, it had sort of a bad reputation attached to it in that in the opinion of some uh it was being undertaken for rather foolish publicity sorts of reasons and as this expedition got closer and closer to mount mckinley sort of the snide comments made to them by various rangers and so on uh made it pretty clear to, from their perspective at least that that they were viewed by at least some as sort of inexperienced uh, hot rodders that uh, maybe had no business doing this. To any extent, do you think that affected the way in which uh, a response, a, a rescue attempt, was was not done very very quickly or or very enthusiastically? I I didn't find any hard concrete evidence of that that I could point to. Uh, you know, either in documents or in interviews, where I could, I could, and this is why I, I wasn't able to say this unequivocally in the book, where I could say that I found evidence that that pre-trip prejudice did, in fact, impede uh, the the rescue attempts uh, to be slow them down, so to, so to say. I, the only, and and the only thing that I could say that seemed to me to have a strong enough connection that it was worth it was worth discussing was the very unusual actions of Don Sheldon the legendary famous incredible
incredibly courageous and incredibly skillful glacier pilot who, again, unfortunately passed away long before I was able to interview him. But uh, Don was truly the most famous, justifiably so, civilian glacier pilot of all time up in Alaska. And despite that, during this episode, behaved very, very peculiarly. And I'll give you one example. When the MC-18 was at about 16,000 feet, we should say this is the this is that group of climbers already on the mountain who are uh, ascending the to the peak in in search of of the of the climbers lost. This That's is Bill correct. Babcock's group. Bill Babcock's group. They had started at twelve thousand. They were sort of sprinting really up the mountain as fast as they could to get up to that high camp. And where when they were about at about sixteen thousand feet, they asked that uh, some more fuel and some more food be dropped to them because they were they were running low. Well, Don Sheldon had a, a weather window when he was able to to load up stuff and, and uh, drop it, and he radioed down to McKinley Base that he was up and he was going to drop their supplies at 14,300 feet. And the guys at McKinley Base just were aghast. They said, no, 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 Don, these guys are at 16. You've got to drop it up there. Well, he refused to do that, and he, so he went ahead and snapped at them, and he dropped it at 14.3. And in addition, he dropped all the supplies in white pillowcases which made them virtually impossible to find. And there were a number of instances like that where his behavior verged on the, well, it really was inexplicable. I postulate uh, this, that Don and Brad Washburn were very, very close friends. And it's possible that Brad's uh, pre-trip comments, which he had made to a number of people, asserting that this expedition was really a a group of fools and shouldn't be on the mountain, uh, may, may, have had some effect on Don's regard for them, and uh, and may have impeded some of his some of his actions. But unfortunately, I was not able to question him directly, so I can only say that that m- might have been the case. Hmm. I have to say that uh, I was surprised in the book that I mean, obviously, we we know that this is primarily about this group of a dozen climbers, uh, more than half of whom perish on the mountain, and and we know that that is going to be the heart and soul of the story and, and what is most harrowing. But the ascent of this rescue party, uh, Bill Pabcock's uh, party, I mean, that's an amazing story in and of itself and of how close they come to dying as well. In particular is an interesting moment when you say that uh, that we can look at the, the handwritten journal of Bill Babcock and at some point what begins one way deteriorates into something else. And and just at a glance, we realize what climbing something like Mount McKinley does to a person. Tell our listeners what I'm talking about. It it was one of the most fascinating uh, examples I've ever seen of uh, what that kind of climbing and what that kind of altitude can do. Um, Bill Babcock was and is a very precise man, and his climbing journal, uh, up until the point we're talking about, was... The, the, the handwriting was perfectly legible. It was the lines went very straight across the page. Every page was, you know, the margins were even. They were very neatly filled up. Well, after about two days of trying to climb to the Wilcox Group's aid, um, his journal looked as though it were being written by a drunk. The 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 letters were ill-formed. The the lines went all over the page, up and down. Some sentences weren't finished. Words were misspelled. Some were illegible. And it was, and he wasn't drunk. You know, it was clear that this was a man in the farthest extremes of of exhaustion, really, uh, doing the best he could, doing the best he could, but 
struggling. And so if it was that hard for him just to write, it occurred to me, my gosh, how hard must it be for him to, to keep going up with an 80-pound pack through waist-deep snow in 50, 60-mile-an-hour winds? It's just a superhuman accomplishment that these fellows made. And one of the great joys for me in the book was being able to tell their story, I think for the first time adequately. They had really never been given the credit that they are due, and I was very happy to be able to do that in this book. Absolutely. Uh, not all the bodies of those climbers that, that perished uh, were found, uh, and I'm pretty sure none were, were brought back down the mountain. That's correct. Um, we, I'm sure uh, a lot of our listeners have, have read the, the uh, astonishing story of, I believe on Mount Everest, of the, the unexpected discovery of, uh, of the body of, of a famous climber from decades ago. Mm-hmm. Is that Mr. Mallory? whose body was found on Mount Everest? Yes, that's exactly right. Yep. Uh, now, is it conceivable that at some point uh, the bodies of these other lost climbers will, will be recovered by, by others scaling Mount McKinley? Is it possible that at some point still more information will be, will be found a, a, about their final fate? That's absolutely conceivable. In um, two years ago, in fact... Uh, severe weather conditions, high winds, and low snowfall served to uncover the remains of a climber who had died on the mountain in 1969 and had gone missing. And so his remains, his body, uh, was was found by a party on the mountain, uh, and um, his family elected to have his remains buried in a crevasse on the mountain. They felt that he would want to stay there. Interestingly enough, just three or four days ago, there was a news story about frozen victims of a plane crash over in the Himalaya, uh, bodies being uh, located in perfectly preserved state, actually, by a a group that, I guess, was climbing around up there, and um, either a thaw or high winds had uncovered them. So it it happens, actually, not all that infrequently, uh, particularly as glaciers move and and may uh, disgorge of, you know, frozen remains. So I, I think it is quite possible. A last question. Do you know very much about what any of these survivors think of your account of what happened in 1967? Have they communicated anything to you about that? Yeah, I know a great deal about it, actually. They were, of course, very, very interested in, in, in the book because they were, because it was a, a piece of investigative journalism as well as an adventure story. Um, they were not given the, the opportunity to to review it in detail before it went to publication. We did our best our best effort and put the book out. So they read it, and uh, Joe Wilcox is sufficiently pleased with it. That he has provided a written endorsement, which he has asked to be included in subsequent editions. Uh, Paul Schlichter, one of the Colorado climbers, um, has said that he found it to be a compassionate, I think his words were a compassionate, well-researched a book, a very well-written, and a book that the author could be proud of. And, and Howard Snyder, frankly, who I, th- I think was probably most concerned about how his actions might be portrayed, uh, read the book and wrote to me and said, Jim, this is, um, he also used the word, he said, compassionate, well-researched, well-written account. You've done a good job. So, um, and I have not heard yet from Anshul Schiff, uh, who has been very busy over in Japan. He's a seismic engineer, so <laughs> I haven't heard from him. But three of the five have uh, been very, very uh, generous in their praise of the mm. book. Well, the fact that it comes from them uh, makes it all the more meaningful. I mean, 
high praise indeed. Absolutely. The book, again, is called Forever on the Mountain, the truth behind one of mountaineering's most controversial and mysterious disasters, published by W.W. Norton and Company. James Tabor, the, the author. Mr. Tabor, I appreciate so much you being so generous with your time and discussing at great length your fascinating book, which I hope many people will seek out. I thank you again for your time. Thank you. It's been a wonderful experience, Greg.